Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, uh, Barry Katz. As I like to do to open these shows, I like to tell a story that sort of, I think, has a six degrees of separation or some unique twist or something that relates in some shred to my guest, Patty Jenkins, and this is a very exciting podcast for me. So, before I start this, I just want to, again, thank uh, everybody who uh, listens to this and is a part of this. It's crazy. I never thought it would be like this. I'm very grateful and thankful, and keep up the emails and the great comments. It's wonderful. Anyway, my story is this. I uh, know a a young man who uh, is an architect, and he's a very talented architect, and he you know, basically gave up everything for his art and sort of just opened his own office in this little space and for the past 10 years just been grinding it out, you know, believes in his talent, believes in who he is. And occasionally, you know, every year he'd have a job that was an extraordinary job where he designed like a multi-million dollar house, but the margins were so slim, always living check to check, yet this guy in his profession in my opinion is it is is brilliant but for some reason for 10 years just grinding it out well other people who i perceived as being less talented than him were were passing him or doing things or weren't making their dreams come true or however it was and he uh called me he said listen 
um, would you come to dinner with me? I mean, I, I, I just, you know, I want to talk to you about my business and my life and what's happening. And I go to, we go to this bar, uh, more like a bar place, like a, you know, women and men mingling around, sort of like a place where you would go to probably pick up somebody or do whatever. And it's kind of noisy, but he's, he's comfortable there and he's telling me his story about how he's doing his business. And I said to him, I said, I don't understand. You know, it's like you're brilliant at what you do, but you're, you're not, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like you're moving the needle as much as you could be at, to this point. And I just, I'm trying to figure out why. And I said, can I ask you a couple of questions? And he said, sure. I said, I said, how many jobs have you done in 10 years? Even the tiniest little things where you're redoing a bathroom to a house or whatever. And he says, he said, maybe I've done a hundred jobs from the littlest thing to the biggest thing. I said, okay, um, how many of those 100 jobs have you um, gone out and gotten? In other words, you're responsible for getting it. You see a sign on a hill that says, we're building here, purchased by this person, and you go get the number, you call the person who purchased the lot, you call them, you set up a meeting, you sell them on what you do as an architect, and then you get the job, and then you do the job. How many times has that happened in 10 years? And he said, uh, once. I said, one, once, one time? He said, yeah, one time. And it was the, you know, now that I think about it, that was like the biggest job I ever had and the most financially successful job I ever had. And I've known him a long time, so I was comfortable saying this to him. I said, so what you're telling me is um, you booked as many architectural jobs by going to get them. You booked one more than a dead guy. Right. So a cadaver could be sitting at your chair for 10 fucking years and you booked one more job than that that you went and got and the rest are people referring to you or somebody calling you. And he said, well, you didn't have to put it that way, but now that you put it that way, yes, that's correct. I've, I've, I've only gone out and gotten one. I said, okay, well, you gotta, you know, we gotta figure this out. You gotta go out and you gotta, you know, you gotta hustle. You gotta figure out how to bet on yourself. You already bet on yourself and got the office, but that's one step of it. Now you gotta bet on yourself and go out and believe in yourself and go out and, and sell yourself as an artist because you are an artist. He said, well, I'm not, you know, that's not really my gig. I'm not my kind of thing that I do. And I said, okay, let's, let's, let's do it this way. Let's, let's, let's figure out, tell me something you're really great at that has nothing to do with architecture. And he puts his head down like he's ashamed. I said, I said, come on, just, you know, tell me where, you know, I've known you for a long time. Just tell me what it is that you've, you know, it's your strength. What's your biggest strength? And he looked down again, he's just rubbing his forehead and his face and he's like, it's like, I don't know, Barry, can we not talk about it? I said, just tell me, what's the thing? He says, okay, <sighs> look around this bar. I say, yeah, I'm looking. He said, see, 
that 55-year-old woman over there with her husband. I said, yeah. See that college kid over there, that girl over there? She's got her books out and her headphones on. I said, yeah. He said, see that 30-year-old and her friends over there, those girls? I said, yeah. He said, see that heavy-set black girl over there? I said, yeah. He said, Barry, I can sleep with any one of them in 24 hours. That's my strength, and I'm ashamed of it. All through my life, since I was in high school and going to college, I could go in up to anybody. Didn't mean if they didn't matter if they had a boyfriend, they had a husband, they were single. I always had the game where I could approach a woman, and in 24 hours, I'd be having sex with her within 24 hours, and most of the time that night. I said, "That's that's fantastic. That's the key. The key is right there." He said, what are you talking about? I said, the key to an artist is what you just described. He said, Barry, you lost me. I said, well, this is it. Okay. When you called that number on that empty lot and you reached out to that person, that millionaire who was buying there, you approached them and they didn't know you. When you go up to those girls when you were in college, you approached them, they didn't know you. You had to sell them on you. Now, in order for a girl to come home with you to a stranger's place, take off all her clothes, she had to feel safe. She had to know that you were going to take care of her and you were going to make her feel special. And she wasn't going to be just another person in your life that drifted through. And it's the same with the architectural job. you got to convince that millionaire to write that check to you and to trust you with millions of dollars of funding and contractors and everything else. And if you can just apply that thing that you used to have with women that you told me about in this bar to architecture, you're going to be in great shape. He says, okay. That was at the beginning of the summer. Labor Day, I got a call. He says, can I take you out to dinner? I said, of course you can take me out to dinner. We go out to the same place. He's ordering shit for me. He's like, hey, try the creme brulee. Try this. You know, you want some extra dinner? What do you want? I'm like, what is going on here? I said, tell me what's going on. I want to tell you at the end, you know, when we're celebrating with our after dinner drink. I'm like, after dinner drink? I'm like, it's a drink. And he raises the glass and he says, I just want to tell you, Barry. This summer, I applied that thing in the bar, that thing that I did with the women to my architectural work. I started calling people and making them feel safe, and I booked five jobs this summer. It's the most money I'll have ever made in a year in my entire career by three times. And cheers. I want to thank you for that, and... I can only hope that everybody out there in the world can figure out a way to take something that's their strength that's dormant in them and bring it into their professional life so they can take their careers to the next level. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. 
It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz's semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back. <laughs> Industry standard uh, with me, uh, my guest today. I can't. I mean, I don't even know how to start. There's so much here, and and when I find when she came in the room here, I was just literally mesmerized by her, and I sort of lost my way a little bit. Patty Jenkins just she has overwhelming charisma. She has this long flowing hair. You know, you pay like millions of dollars to get it like that, but it's 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 that way. People from all over the world try to get it that way, but she probably just. You know, just did this thing where she just tussled her hair a little bit. So um, she's just got a glow about her, and she's, uh, it's really, it, I, it's unexpected for me, and I'm sorry I'm fawning over you and myself at this God, moment, but that's okay. <laughs> but I will introduce you as best I can because um, uh, you've told me some amazing things uh, so far that we're going to get into where, uh, believe it or not, her roots uh, were in comedy. Uh, they never, they didn't stay in comedy, but they, they were in comedy. And uh, she's best known for, uh, uh, obviously, writing and directing Charlize Theron's Academy Award-winning performance um, in Monster, which uh, we're going to get to and we're going to spend a lot of time in. But she's done a lot of amazing things as well in terms of uh, directing and writing and so many different great series that she's been a part of that we're going to talk about you know things like arrested development and entourage and she just directed i believe the pilot of the killing which is an amazing series which is thank you as powerful as it gets it's just uh, there's so many things i want to talk about from betrayal to uh <laughs> i mean even the things that I, because I, I, I've been looking at a lot of stuff about you, I love like old interview footage of things like Charlie Rose and things like that when that I see great. you and it just like, you just, 
it's it, it's fascinating to me. So I, I have so many things to talk about with you, and I will, but uh, I just feel like you need no introduction because I'm so honored to have you here, and I am fawning, and I'm going to stop. But please welcome my guest today, uh, Patty Jenkins. Thank you. God, I think that's the nicest introduction I've ever gotten. Thank you. <laughs> Seriously. That's <laughs> so nice. I just, it's all going to go downhill from here, though, believe me. <laughs> now, let's talk about what I don't like. <laughs> yes, and we will talk about what you don't like, and you'll be reduced to tears oh, after. No, no, I'm sorry. You know, yeah. that won't happen. But let, I like to start off these crazy podcasts, you know, going way back, and I like to sort of like try to figure out like most people in the world try to figure out what's my path. Now, some people like, you know, they're four years old and they're, you know, dancing around their living room with a hairbrush saying the sun will come out tomorrow, you know, and they yeah. know they're going to say, like, what is it that happened in your life? What was the moment that happened? When was it where you said, I want to be in the entertainment business. I want to be in something having to do with that. Like what happened? You know, it's funny because I actually have a weird answer for that, which is uh, there were two. The first was I was very vague because I had lived all over the world. And even though my mom is a real film buff, it just never, ever would have occurred to me that I could that there's a job to be a filmmaker, even though I was a fan of filmmakers. That was like for other people, not, you know. Now, let's just put a pin in that for a second. Yeah. You said you lived all over the world well tell us why you lived all over the world and what was the first country or city that you remember and at what age were you and how many places did you live and what were some of those places before you get into that okay. story so my father was a fighter pilot i was so i do have a very good memory of my childhood but i also think that i I own, I just know I have a good memory of my childhood because I can mark where I was when. So I don't know. I think maybe everybody has a good memory of their childhood. But um, I was born on an Air Force base here in California that has been since closed down. And my father was being sent to Vietnam and uh, as a fighter pilot. And so my, and my mother was like a 70s rebel, young you know, feminist. And so my mother did not want to stay. My mother had also been a military brat and lived all over the world. So my mom did not want to stay here. So she decided to take us with her and that we went to Cambodia while he was in Vietnam, which was so dodgy now, like now that I look back, like, so we were in Cambodia on our own, not sanctioned to be there by the government. Where were you Insanity. living in Cambodia? I don't even know, but we were, so my father, air, the fighter pilots were stationed in Cambodia. So we were close to him. All I know is that my mother very early on said, I can hear the bombs going off. And my dad said, that's impossible. And then called back like two days later and was like, get out of Cambodia. So it was like the secret bombings of Cambodia. Like I, I, it was all so dodgy. I can't, you know, and they were so young and it's so crazy. So then we moved to Thailand. My first memory is going there which was I was I swear to god I was three months old <laughs> which is crazy except for I know that my first memory is laying in a box on the floor of an airplane looking out the window so my mom says that was when we flew to Cambodia like that was on the trip over there which was epic and you know so I, I so I remember from there little things you know you're the house in Thailand but not not much you know foggy then from there we went to Germany um, apparently we lived some other places in Europe around, you know, Spain and some other places. Then, um, 
at some and then my mom and my dad split up and then I we went how is it possible for parents to stay together under those conditions? No, I, know. I mean, I don't and even also know. They're 20 years old. I mean, when I look back at it now, I was like, my mom was 21, two kids, 21, you know, you're like, you're teenagers. I don't, I don't, yeah, and my dad's offline all the time. And so, um, of course, you know, they drift apart and, and they get divorced. And how old were you when that happened? Four. Four. So that was bone crushing. Yeah, that was bad. I remember that. I do remember that. Um, and then we moved to San Francisco. My mom tries to put herself through school. We Mississippi, where my grandparents are, we're all over the place. And then my mom moves to Kansas. Got it. And it's you, your mom, and who else? My sister. And how old is she? Is she younger than She's you? She's older. Got three it. years okay. older. Got it. And then we end up in Kansas while my mom puts herself through school. So really, like, if there's any place I'm sort of from, in a way, it's kind of Kansas, because that's where I was the longest and I had the most consistency. Yet, I never quite felt like I was from Kansas when there were lots of other people from Kansas. Neither did Dorothy. Yes, exactly. And you very much want to get out, Dorothy. <laughs> um, and then throughout those years, we moved to England for a while. We came back, you know, and all these things. And... Uh, and my father passed away, which then is why the divorce is eclipsed in the, you know. And, and how old were you when seven, he passed away? Seven. So there's two incidents right there in three years that just, uh, yeah. that'll, no, that'll rip a hole in you. Yeah. And certainly, you know, when we talk about my later work, certainly that was hugely influential, you know, like to, who, to, to my my curiosity in talking about how stuff can be absolutely not fair. Like things, your life can just go badly, you know, and my life has not gone badly. But the observation that like, wow, that's terrible, <laughs> you know, like that was, that's a terrible thing. But besides that, I've, I've lived a very good life and stayed there um, and moved all over the place to have family in New York. I was in New York a lot and then DC and then, um, so the, uh, but the answer to the question now, now to get to the question. I don't know why it is, but I, you know, maybe it's the exposure to different things that I'd seen. I always remember living in England and seeing punk rockers, and I was like, oh my God, that's the most incredible thing I've seen in my life. And music, which I love music, and so I was very interested in music. The moment that I remember, and it's funny because I have other friends who are entertainers, and many of them have moments where they saw a stage and they were like, that's what I want to do. Mine was predictably vague as somebody who would go on to be a film director mine was hilariously I was in junior high when new wave I mean I was in elementary school I was in like the fourth grade when new wave hit the states and Gary Newman released the song cars and adamant I think put his album out about then and my first memory of wanting to do this was I was like my greatest fantasy in life would be to bring Gary Newman and Adam Ant to my elementary school to perform even though nobody here knows who they are or cares and I was like <laughs> and when I look back I think about what a funny thing that is because I was like I wanted to be involved with them and and appreciate their work and like and celebrate their work and have something to do with it but I didn't want to be on the stage and interestingly because of the kind of work I've ended up being interested in it wasn't even popular where I lived I was like what because I feel this way all the time and I'm like what's your problem like I'm really interested in stuff that's not commercial or going to help me but yet I'm inter you're interested in what you're interested in you can't help yourself so that's my first moment you're interested in music 
Yes. And then my second moment is also music related. Um, and then, by the way, the comedy thing, I don't know what it was, but it's funny when you look back at like what your education is and people talk about the movies that they saw. Well, I can't tell you any of that, but I saw every episode of Carol Burnett, um, Bob Newhart, and Steve Martin played a very bizarre role in my life. It's interesting, you know, Patty was looking around my office uh, before uh, we started and as many of you you know, I, like I have a, a, a signed uh, album of Bob Newhart's on my wall called The Button Down Mind, which uh, was the inspiration for me um, getting in this business. Uh, um, and uh, Patty just related the story that I, I hope she's going to tell right now about uh, how her first comedy album came about. Yeah. Steve Martin's album was on sale at Woolworths. And I would take my... <laughs> I would take my um, I would take my allowance and go and buy things. And I bought this record and it was my only record for years. And I listened to it over and over and over again. And was that the wild and crazy? Yes. Guy? And then I ended up buying the other banjo, uh, another one later. But I, I listened to it obsessively. And the funny thing is Steve Martin became this figure in my dreams where I would dream about Steve Martin all the time. And he became this this person in my life where I'd be like, I dreamed about Steve Martin. Everybody would say, what's new? You dream about Steve Martin all the time. <laughs> so then Steve Martin got into my brain somehow. And it's funny because I've met Steve Martin once and I couldn't even talk to him. I was like, ah, Matt, nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> like, I usually don't care, but I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> but he was huge. He's but not always that approachable. To be we honest. just happened to be at like I, the Nantucket film festival yeah. and like standing in a crowded space together. And I, I've regretted it. I wished I talked to him more, but, um, but what a huge, tremendous figure in my history. Um, and you know what's weird is like, just uh, to, to digress slightly, today in comedy, like if, if, if we were just at any comedy club, you know, whatever, the improv or the Laugh Factory or the comedy store, we were just watching a lineup of comedians and a guy comes on stage with rabbit ears and an arrow through his head dancing around saying happy feet. I'm a wild and crazy guy. Comedians would be in the back. They'd be saying, what a fucking hack. I mean, come on. The guy's got an arrow through his head. I mean, where's the jokes? There's no right. jokes here. He's just dancing around on stage. The same thing like if Eddie Murphy came into a club, whatever, and and he rolled, rolled in and nobody knew who Eddie Murphy was. And he was, you know, a young kid. And he opened up with, you know, Ralph Cramden getting fucked in the ass by Art Carney. Right. The comics would be in the back, you know, and it, it, it would be all, all the comics would be in the back saying, I mean, God, this guy, I mean, come on. I mean, this is the lowest common denominator humor ever. They'd probably say this guy's a hack or whatever. That's so funny. But the point is, is that because comedy is cyclical of how right. it goes. And we all know that Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin from our generations are considered, you know, many people consider them geniuses yeah. in oh, what yeah. they did. And so, but today, like, there's a different kind of comedy. Yeah. And so if Louis C.K. or Zach Galifianakis were to go on, you know, 30 years ago or 40 years ago in front of people like Steve Martin or Lenny Schultz or or all these uh, artists, uh, Judy Tenuta, who was crazy, yeah. and, or Emo Phillips, or Bobcat Goldthwait, um, or Sam Kinison, and Louis were to just go on and roll on with his straight stand-up, he would be possibly 
more chance of being lost in the crowd oh, yeah. than he is now today. So it's how it, it goes around. But it all makes sense when you think about it. It's like the Steve Martin and, and you know, you're coming out of a time of repression and uh, and I feel like all those comedians are doing what it, what nobody else wants to say, right? Nobody else wants to lose control and then it moves on to like, being a popular character in the 80s and then now like Louis CK the genius of it to me is I'm always like god he's being so truthful right now like I can't believe how really for real that comedy is and in comedy the way things are and uh in the business there's people who rise rise hard and they they, they fall right. and then they stabilize or whatever right and it's very hard as a comedian to be relevant for years and years and years to collect you know like a chris rock or yep. somebody like that it's very or a steve martin although he's not really doing comedy anymore he's doing music but and that's the thing about comedy that's so such a difficult pr uh, profession i feel directing uh, there's many more success stories of people that have long-term careers. Right. You know, you look yeah. at Gary Marshall, he's probably 85 years old. Yeah. You know, Martin Scorsese, all these people, and there's comedy and drama directors. And it's a thing like, in my opinion, if you do great work, even if it doesn't come all the time or the way it's supposed to be, no one can ever take it away from you. But in comedy, they, the fans, they discover you. Right. They love you. They feel like they brought you to where you are. And then when you make it, they have a desire to help somebody else get where he wants right. to go. Yeah. And that's just the way it, it, it normally is. Yeah. And I'm sorry uh, we're digressing. No, but I not just, at all. Because I, I, I want to talk about this. So music, comedy. So what gets you to feeling like you're going to be in a career in entertainment and what is it that what happened i mean i know you bought the album yeah i know you well, listen to the music you. but something had to happen where you're sitting in your lair or wherever you were in some place around the world writing and i when i look at you and now i'm across from you i'm starting to the pieces of the puzzle are starting to come together for me uh, and because you have the divorce you have the loss mm -hmm. and the lack of control of being shuttled from city to city, town to town, and country to country, trying to latch on to anybody, a friend, and every friend you make, you're ripped apart from that friend. And that's not a time when there's texting or internet or whatever. So all these wonderful people you meet along the way, probably hundreds of them, are just taken from you as you're being brought to another place so you have no control during your childhood true, at this time actually. so it's it's it that's that shapes somebody in a certain way and normally for an artist it's very it astute i've never thought about it in those terms at all but it's what is interesting is that's a great observation because I think that when I think about why I'm an artist, which you come back to periodically every time you think about what you're going to do next or whatever it is, like, well, what am I trying to get out of this? The one thing I always think, and I definitely think my, my father passing away was huge in this, is I'm a very romantic person. And I don't know that's because my opposite sex parent was taken away or whatever, you know, the romantic love that you missed out on from your upbringing or whatever. But I'm very romantic 
And I like emotions. I like them. I'm very romantic about like what they are, but I like truthfulness within there. So like kind of accepting the darkness and all of that stuff. And so I was always very drawn to that. And then I think bonded with that was uh, a belief that life was not going to be terribly pleasant because of my father dying. And then really feeling like I wanted to live these things by making them. Because I was said, well, you know, who knows what's going to happen really in life. Life is kind of crappy. But I want to live great love and great, beautiful things so I can make them. But then I didn't know... I. I didn't know where to do that. Like that's what I was interested in and that I would I would I would receive it most in the form of music. But I wasn't interested in playing music even though I had played violin for a long time. I you know, I did not like the violin. And uh and then I just was in the arts. I was not going to succeed in anything else. I was not interested in anything else. So I was in the hardcore scene in my youth, so I was very involved in music and then painting, photography, you know, and that was all we did make flyers and paint pictures and you know mess around with music so then I heard about a school that was a great art school that was free and I just became laser focused on getting in there from the time I was in junior high I was like I'm going to Cooper Union in New York City I'm getting out of here and so then all of my sites were were on the ambition of like I'm going to that school and that's and that's what's that's what I want to do there's something art painting whatever and literally within two months of getting there, I took an experimental film course. When I took this experimental film course, Peter Peter Gabriel had started making soundtracks. And the soundtrack to Birdie rocked my world. And I listened to it all the time. And the images and the emotions that it would evoke in me. And then he did The Passion. The images and the emotions he invoked in me, I was like, that's what I want. Like, that's what I want to do. And so the first time I sat down and I, and I was not being narrative yet, but I put image to music, I was like, it was the first time I had a pure relationship with art where instead of doing it for ambition to get into Cooper or whatever, I was literally could not stop. And so I was sitting there moving images to music to move images to music and then trying to think about how I was going to elicit those emotions, you know, like, and then it leads you to story. And, th- and immediately I was done with two-dimensional art because it was always my problem. My paintings were always very narrative. They were almost like movie posters, but it was just not enough, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't getting to what I wanted, which was that emotion, very interesting. You just said some really interesting things about that. Okay, so you're taking that, and what happens next? Like, how are you, how are you paying the rent? Where are you living? Like, what is it? Wh- how are you surviving? You're at this, you know, school that's like a very specific school. You're in New York, the most expensive city in the world. You've already established that your mom didn't have a lot of money and mm-hmm. was traveling all over the place. How did you survive? What were you? Cooper's free, and that was part of the ambition of getting in there. My sister had gone to Bryn Mawr, and I knew that that was very hard for my, you know, my mother would do whatever she. But had it's to free, do but you still stuff. have to live in New York. Yes, I and I love waiting tables, and I still like <laughs> it was my favorite job. Ever. I thought you were going to say, and I still wait tables. No, uh, but I actually joke fact, periodically. I'm like, something? one day I'm going to disappear, and you're going to find me in a diner somewhere because well, it's not about the money. I like working, and it was a very zen 
like social job that I enjoyed. So I waited tables at Dojo's on St. Mark's I Place love dojos. the entire time. Wait a second. That I was what in year were you doing dojo? I was there from 89 to 93. Every I can, day. I can guarantee you I can, uh, I'll that bet you, you you're waited right. on me. I'll bet you you're right. And I can't tell you how many other people, you know, are like. I love dojos. That I, that, I, that I waited on. Because I had the I Boston knew. Comedy Club on West 3rd Street in oh, the yeah. village. Oh, wow. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that, yeah, I'm sure. I, I was love, there all the time. I love that Every place. day. Yeah. It's so, so weird, like, when I, you came in here, it's like I felt like I knew you in some way. I'm and it's sh- like, it, would, it would actually make sense. And, you know, like we had been talking about, I, I, st- I was, I stayed very interested. I've always stayed interested in comedy, even though I was doing nothing in comedy. So I also was at those clubs a lot. Now, here's a question I yeah. want to ask you. Did you go to the Boston Comedy Club? No, you know Oh, yeah. That. You did? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I went to all the comedy clubs. Well, you know that was my club that I owned. I did not know that. Yes, yes. No. And so, 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 but I just want to ask you something about the waitressing thing, because it, okay, it relates to the art. And this is something that I never understood. When I was in New York, I had my office at 57th Broadway. And there was this amazing shitty diner at 57th and Broadway that was just had the most amazing food. And you'd order, I think it was called the Cosmic Diner or some crazy thing. I can't remember what it was. And you'd order this amazing meal and all this stuff. And it'd be like, you know, $12. And if I felt, and I had a wonderful server who was always there, you know, similar to how you yeah. were, just loved waitressing. And, you know, if I felt generous at that time in my life, maybe I gave her, you know, $5 on a, you know, 10 or $15 thing or whatever I had. And then I remember one day I did this deal with Chappelle and it was a great overall deal. And I thought, oh, I'm going to treat myself. And I went to the uh, Four Seasons and this wonderful woman served me and she was such a great server. And the bill came to like $50 and I... I felt particularly generous again, like at the time for the, the level of the bill at that point in my life. I think I gave her like $15 or something right. like that or, or maybe 20 Right. And as I was walking back to my office, I said to myself, wow, same profession, same job, same skill set. Yet one woman chose to work in a place where she can only make Thirty-three percent of what the other person made. Mm-hmm. So here you I are. Can answer that. You're talented. Really you're, you're you're great at waitressing. Yeah. Yet you work in dojos, which was a low budget, yep. but cool hip place. I can tell you. You exactly. could have worked in the Four Seasons and done the same thing and made more money. Why didn't you? It's the same with everything in life. Every job you ever take, you get what you are willing to put in, and that's all there is. So. I, at Dojo's, could walk straight from school, hair a mess, paint on my hands. <laughs> I had massive amount of tables, huge amounts of tables you would end up having. The turnover was so quick, and it was like an athletic sport. And none of it mattered that much. So really, my head was in my own game. By the way, I love that you're so comfortable. This makes me feel <laughs> so good. I can't I feel, even... T- I'm dying to... I am so... Good. You can take your shoes good. off. You can go crazy. <laughs> you do whatever you. you want. I love this. It makes me feel like good. a million bucks and you're comfortable. I am. I am. I'm very comfortable. I perceive that you're going to run out of here pissed off. At no. Yes. Yeah, so you're in New York. You're waitressing. You have some money. You're living... A alone living with best friend I my best friend got, from Kansas and I both got into Cooper and so we were, were there 
I, I was still one foot in the hardcore scene. A lot of the people coming out of the hardcore scene were still my very good friends and, you know, people from different bands and things. And so I was living in the worst area because we were very, I don't know, we were just interested in all that stuff. You know, we were like interested in being tough and interested in all that stuff. So we were living on Avenue C and 10th Street and it was very dodgy. Very but dodgy. we were into it. And then, you know, many people of the hardcore scene that were kind of drifting out of the hardcore scene were congregating on Avenue A. And so we were at the Wawa Hut and the Alcatraz, you know, these two bars that we all went to all the time. And so that was my life. I was really, and then. I and, remember those two bars. Yeah, we were there every day. So I would, wait a ta- I would wait tables at dojos. I would go to those bars, hang out with my friends from, you know, the ex-hardcore scene. And then I went to school but I was I was sort of socially less involved in school, and I just started doing my own thing. So then, so you but you have a goal to to make a living, not at waitressing, but with your art and the craft. You haven't written anything yet. You haven't shot anything yet. I start shooting things so really badly. So you start shooting things really badly. Because I, I approach it, and this continues for many years, I approach it like a painter. So instead of just reading a book about it, I just start trying. Do you know you're bad? Uh, I know I'm not good, but I don't know... I don't know that being good is going to be as as clear as it will, and you'll end up understanding it to be. So you're still immature and in the arts you're kind of like I don't know maybe it's good I don't know what it is you know um you're just trying stuff but I knew enough to know oh I don't know my craft that well and I don't want to transfer to a film school that I have to pay for and frankly I'm glad I I didn't want to go to film school at that age anyway because I think that the legitimate conversations about the business ruins you at that age like I I hate the art world from what I learned about the art world at that such a young age it just killed the art of it you know the agents and blah blah you know and so I'm glad I didn't but I decided okay I'm gonna go work in film and I want to work in commercials because I just want to learn technique and I don't want to be on a movie for a year as a PA you know it's too long so I don't know why that was my thought. I found a commercial production house that was owned by two women who had the American Express account and the Nike account at the time, Epoch Films. And I just focused on them the way I had on did Cooper. You, did you intern or you got to Yeah, do? so I beat. I just bugged them until they finally let me intern. And then I hated it. I hated being an intern. I was their worst intern because I was sitting in the office and I hated that. So you're, the, so worst, then, you're, you're the worst young filmmaker and you're the worst intern. Worst intern. Okay. And this is all for real. I knew nothing. I had no, no natural advantage But you're a fucking great waitress. All. I was a very good waitress. I, I will say that. Yeah. But I'd been doing it since I was 14. So there you go. But um, but then, so then I got onto a set finally, at, and which is really what I wanted to do. Like at, as an intern, they want you to make phone calls and do things like that, and it just wasn't. I wasn't good at it, and I got onto set. A friend of mine from high school in D.C. had was a the loader in the camera department, and he was like, "Oh man, I'm going to introduce you to these camera guys." I met those guys, and they only worked with people they trained. So I became uh, uh, an AC for the next eight years. So then I was became a full blown. Explain focused. to our audience what so an AC that's is. A ca- that's a camera person, and in the camera department on film, there are, you know, th- generally two. And then in a, in a film up to, you know, five or six people in the camera department where you are the ones who 
build the camera, put the film in the camera, focus the camera, pick out the equipment, make sure everything's working and all of that. It was a very technical job, but it was a great job because I did commercials and music videos. I hit the music video thing right as hip hop was hitting New York hip hop videos. So I did every, you know, crazy hip hop you know, Wu-Tang and Mary J and Biggie and all, all of those videos. So you're this, this uh, young, did, you're this young white girl in a sea of uh, African-American artists. Uh, once or twice I was the only white person on the set, but that's sadly was not that common still because there were not crew people enough to be, you know, it still wasn't, hadn't become a black film world. So there were lots of hip hop videos, but, um, but so I did, I mean, And what kind of directors were you in contact Everybody. with and watching who were directing? So there was a whole stuff? ton of young men who were doing music videos. And Any women? No. Well, one, Diane Martell, I think was doing videos at that time. But, or she was, I worked with her. But um, Brett Ratner and, you know, Puffy started, branched, Puffy was working with Brett at first and then he puffed out, uh, branched out on his own and Hype Williams and all, all kinds of people. What would you say is the key to uh, the technique of directing a music video versus the technique of directing, let's say, an hour drama or film? Totally different. And you know what? I wouldn't even really know because it was never, I never was interested in doing it. So I didn't ever focus on it. It was, I knew that it wasn't my thing because I knew, and I still actually feel this way. There's a line in the sand and you're interested in what you're, there's probably several things, but to me, those things are about making film cool and look cool. And I was all about emotion. So it wasn't, I love the emotion of music and yet I'm surprised with my love of music. I never wanted to do it, but I was never going to hit those emotional things I wanted doing a music video, you know, like, in fact, I was only going to take a song that I love down a notch because I, my favorite songs, I don't want to see somebody's video of it. I want to just hear the song, you know, personally. Um, so I, so I, I only will say that because, so I went there for eight years and then I was like, this is it. You either like buy a house and move to the island and marry the key grip or like, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you got if you want to be a filmmaker, it's funny what a fail. Okay. This is something I will tell your audience who, if it's about struggling, I wish I could tell every 24 to 28 year olds in the world to fucking relax <laughs> because <laughs> you take yourself so seriously at that age and you think that it is make it or break it time. I mean, I remember wanting to die at 23 when I was like, wow, pff, 23. You haven't made it very far, have you? You're an AC. Good good for no movies. You haven't made a movie at all. And then in retrospect, I'm like, thank God I didn't get success as a filmmaker in my 20s. Like you just, but even 28, you're like, that was it. I failed. It's over. <laughs> you, think that's, you think that's middle-aged. You actually think that's middle-aged. Now I'm 42. I'm like, oh my God, that middle age was way later than I thought it was. And everybody didn't make it till they were 30, you know? Anyway. Um, so then when I went to film school, I was segueing there because it was only once I got to film school, I had to truly focus on every habit I had seen in the music video and commercial world. Mostly the commercial world I'd paid more attention to, the Nike commercials and the, you know, working with high fashion photographers and things like that. It's your eye. I, I could say it as simply as one's superficial and one's not, but that's a belittling way of saying it. it's not that. Your eye's in a different place. So your eye is literally on the screen when you're making something uh, for style. It's got to look just so. 
And when you're making something emotional, your eyes not literally on the screen. It's like inside your own like prefrontal frontal cortex. You're like building a pyramid that's going to turn into the emotion that you want it to. And like the visual, the literal visual matters far less. You're like, you're, I'm, so I, I had to learn that and really think about that. But I almost feel like na narrative filmmaking is like tightening a coil. So every step you have to make sure you're at the right place and tightening that coil so that it goes koosh when you want it to. And the biggest thing that people have to get over is if you're used to your eye being on the screen literally, that doesn't add up to anything necessarily. It can. Some people like Fincher can do both amazingly. You know, he's got an amazing eye and he understands story intuitively or Kubrick or whatever. But it doesn't necessarily can look amazing and add up to nothing, you know? So your priorities are in two different places. All right. So take me to the next step where you decide you, you know, want to really take the leap and do something that maybe you write and, uh, you know, you get to direct your own words when does that happen so around 28 and I'm feeling completely like a failure or like I'm I, I can't I'm starting to not be able to sleep so I can tell like there's something wrong I'm not satisfied I want more Brian Callen gets mad tv and so Brian is gonna move I remember that yeah and Brian's gonna move to LA and we are together and I say oh my god like what's gonna happen are we gonna or like, am I going to LA with him or am I not? And coincidentally, uh, I, I work on a Michael Jackson video where the cameraman, a guy named Peter uh, Levy, a cinematographer, says something to me about AFI. So he just says, well, yeah, you don't want to go to film school because, you know, whatever. And he's the only AFI I think they let you get in is just what you are. I didn't want to go hold a boom. I've been on a crew. You know, I've been a, I'm a first AC at this point and which is the head of the camera department. I've done thousands of jobs and like I don't want to go learn how to run a sound deck because I already know I don't want to. do. So that. you're in the union. Oh, yeah. I was in the union very early on, you know, something um, that our audience doesn't know. What do ACs get paid from from from? <laughs> From the from, from the from the lowest level to the head know, of the. I don't uh, know what the rate is now, but in commercials back then, PA was making one fifty a day. A second AC was making or loaders probably two fifty a day, and by the time I was a first, it was five hundred a day. I think ten hours, and then oftentimes, you know, because of the uh, way music videos were going, you could end up on thirty hour days. You know. I don't think you're going to be back at Dojo after that. Though. No. No. And also there were other opportunities, you know, they like being an intern at MTV I've, I, or like I got a, a job. I got an offer to be an intern at the at the Daily Show, which I think back now I'm like, what a different life that would have led to. But it was just not enough money after I started day seeing. So anyway, so I hear about a, out AFI and Brian is a get, has gotten mad TV. And so I apply and then we break up. But then I get in. <laughs> and then, and it was just that was what was happening it was my only way out and it was sad because i'll always remember sitting in my closet i had this apartment on on the upper west side sitting in your closet so much and i could sit in my closet and my apartment was empty and i thought god damn it i loved living on the upper west side it was the happiest my whole life of living all over the place and 76 between columbus and central park west was like the happiest i'd ever been i lived at lincoln towers oh did you yeah. Ugh, i was like i was so happy and i thought i can not believe I'm leaving here but you know what you can't get 
you can't get there from here. You know, like I'm either going to sit in this studio apartment and you're never moving to Central Park West. You know, like you're not whatever the parallel is. I, there's nowhere else to go from here. I have to go to L.A. So I went to L.A. and I worked on exercising the bad influences of commercials and music videos and made a bunch of short films. And I always wrote them because for whatever reason, I have specific desire. I am not a good writer and I still... You're not a good writer. I don't know if I'm a good writer or not, but I don't think... I think I'm good at certain things and I think I'm okay at writing. It's incredibly hard for me, you know? And, um, but yet... Still, to this day, you know, 20 years after this all started, I still see what I want to do so clearly that only I can write it. I've tried to get other people to write it. I've tried to work with other people, but it's like, so still to this day I write. So I wrote all my short films and then... Was there one of the short films that even you, as critical as you are, look at it and say... Okay, that one, that one, that one's that one. I'll stack up against anybody. No, I would not say that. But I would say I was I I was intrigued because I I decided AFI is not the best place to make award-winning shorts because of the style of how they do it. It's all collaborative, so you can't really just do what you want to do. But I did one about an architect, which was my best. Here we go. Full very circle. dry. I know. Very dry about a, a an architect who'd been doing commercial buildings his whole life and decided to enter an architecture competition. And it was a very small, dry story. And it was where I think I hit my stride for the first time where I was like, oh, there's something because I was trying very poppy things, which are hard to do on a low budget. And that was where I was like, wow, okay, that was very interesting. So you felt it. Yeah, I felt it. And then I So was that the first time you said to yourself, like, I can do this and I can I, I can I can do this as a profession. I don't even think I said it then. It didn't matter anymore. The nice thing about the progression of my life is I've been desperate enough each time that I've gotten anywhere. I've snapped over to the place of, you know what? I don't give a fuck anymore. At this point, <laughs> it's got to happen, you know? And honestly, the moment I had right before Monster, right before I did Monster, was one moment I'll never forget because I you know you're so hard on yourself do I deserve is my work good enough is it blah 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 and I was standing in a video store and I just snapped and I was like you've got to be kidding me all these mo I'm getting my I don't care if I'm good or not if that guy can get that movie made I am getting a movie made at one I'm getting one movie made at least you could drag me out of this town I am not leaving here without making at least one movie you got to be kidding you know and so I think I, I've never felt like I'm good I've always felt like I want that's really interesting. You've never felt like you're good. You've just felt like I want. And I, because I, I think self-doubt will always take you down if you if you think about it. Of course, you're yeah. not as good as who you want to be, you know? It's just I got I, every step I've ever made. I'm like, you got to at least try. So just forget it. Who cares? Maybe you're good. Maybe you're not good. Maybe you're talented. Maybe you're not talented. At some point, you got to just move forward. So how does it come about that you find this story very and funny it's like it's a funny story it is a funny story how like, it happened. i mean to me like how do you is there an article on eileen wernus what i mean i uh, so i am a true crime buff i 
watch true crime obsessively and I read true crime obsessively. How many forensic files have. have you seen? Oh, most of them. <laughs> I mean, and I do, I have like 10 shows TV'd right now. And the funny thing about TV is I only watch comedy and true crime. Like that's all <laughs> I watch on TV. It's very funny unless there's a show I really love. Um, I had been in Florida. I was on a road trip with a friend of mine. This summer, Eileen Warnes was killing people. So I was very aware of her from since 1990 1980s the summer of 1989 so 89 when you, I was there you were there and but nobody knew it was her and started putting the pieces together until so night, you saw until the later. articles in the paper about the here. murders and there was also a male serial killer active at the same time in Florida so it was unclear what was happening and then she got caught I think it was in 90 that she got caught but it, maybe it was 89 that she got caught um so I followed it very carefully from day one you know and I was just intrigued like, um, and, and, and bothered by the way her story was reported because I never felt like, um, and there've been several stories like that I've encountered in my life where you're just kind of like, really people, you can't be perceptive enough to look at that person and see that they don't just hate men and they love killing them. Like she's like a feral animal backed into a corner. She had these terrified, deeply abused eyes and it was just tragedy, you know, like it was, and, and yet the way she was reported is like, oh, she's a man-hating lesbian. She hates, and I was like, what? I'm just amazed that that's as like deep as you guys can go. This is, person's been hooking, has been in, has been in the hospital from being beaten into the hospital many times. I mean, what's so hard to figure out here, you know? Yet it was intriguing because you're like, wow, a hooker turned the tables and started killing the Johns. So anyway... As the years went by, I was just always remembered her story. Um, and then the funny thing about the story is, and it's a boring story because I have told it many times, many places, but I was writing. There's nothing boring about you or oh. any story you have to tell. <laughs> Thank you. Only boring is my monotone voice asking Not you boring. the question. Um, so I had graduated from AFI. My short film had gotten into the AFI Fest, which is not as automatic as, as one would think. And I was, so I was psyched that it was in, but I was writing a thriller that took place around the World Trade Center and 9-11 happened. And so I went to this festival with nothing, you know, so it wasn't like uh, I had some project that I was able to pedal. And they had this thing called the Kodak to Connect program where they sat fil young filmmakers who had films in the festival across from people in the industry. And I was totally unprepared because I had I was, I was writing a thriller, which really is about downtown New York City. I wouldn't want to do it anywhere else. And now that face of that is completely changed forever. And so I met a lot of people who I now know in the industry and sat was was lucky enough to sit across from, you know, you talk about somebody whose voice is monotone and curmudgeon -y. Brad Wyman, who is a producer, still my dear friend, who he literally said to me, uh, you probably don't even want to waste your time talking to me because I'm really not even in the industry anymore. Let me be honest with you. I'm selling printer cartridges online. I don't even want to do this. And I just have one <laughs> client. He won't let me go. And there's plenty of other people you should be talking to. And I, and that's actually exactly what he said. And I said, that's hilarious. Like I've never heard anything. And he's like curm curmudgeon as all hell. And so I said, what movie are you making? He said, oh, I'm making this movie about Ted Bundy and, you know, <laughs> blockbusters making these serial killer movies. And I, the conversation went like this. Oh, well, you should, 
you should make one about uh, Eileen Warnus. That's an incredible story. And he goes, well, you should. You're not going to get anything else made. And I was like, <laughs> uh. And he said, I'm not the one greenlighting them, but I'll introduce you to that person. And literally that's, a, you know, we want to talk about life lessons for people struggling in their world. I pushed on the door for 12 years and then I fell through the door. It was like the door opened. It wasn't a good idea either, by the way. I met with the people doing those films. Shady. Everything about it was shady. I was going to get paid nothing. But I just want to point out something you said. You knocked, you banged, you pushed, you pushed, pushed, you you pushed. You kicked, you kicked, you There's an old expression. You um, hit a rock with a hammer 99 times. You know, nothing happens. Right. You hit it the hundredth time, it breaks open. Exactly. And why does it break open? I'm here again, by the way, in my career. Right now I'm pushing and I'm pushing and I'm pushing and I've been pushing on a few movies for a long time. Well, we're going to talk about that. Okay, too. we'll get there. <laughs> but I'm like, but I'm, I'm telling myself, I'm like, look, they're either gonna, the door's going to open or the door's not going to open. You know, you can do, just do what you can do. Um, and what's also the fate of that situation. What were the chances you were going to be at that table? I almost didn't go either. Like I, I think about how much I didn't want to go to that Kodak to Connect program thing. Oh, this is one of those bullshitty going to advance your career things. And the, the, the least likely conversation changed my entire life, like changed my entire life. Because he said that and he followed through and he introduced me to the people and and I started, and I'll always remember, I was working on something, to, uh, I was working on an exercise video for a friend at the time, and I was editing it with another friend of mine from AFI, and I remember telling him, I met this guy, and he said they're making these serial killer movies, and I'll always remember both of us saying, like, that sounds dodgy, you know, <laughs> like, not sounding, and I, I remember saying, I'm desperate, I just, I have to go forward, you know, like, I just have so to So you go meet forward. with these people that you don't feel comfortable with? I just, the whole thing was... You hadn't written anything yet? I started working on it at the but same time. Sort of the I, but about you were pitching it. the idea. You didn't have the rights to her story. Nope. I started writing her. But you didn't have the rights before you started writing her. No. No. And I started looking into it. And what really happened was those blockbuster movies were being made for so little money. What's so little money? $500,000, you know. And, and you determined with all your experience that the amount of money you needed to make this come out the way you wanted to come out would be how much money i did not know but what i did know was this they wanted to make a straight to video product which was going to which in the in the one sense the greatest thing that ever happened to me was that i aimed at the b-movie genre and those things can get made you know it's just like oh a lesbian serial killer sure here's a check you know like the, the whatever what then I said to myself was, was, okay, man, if you're going to make a movie, what are the greatest movies that have ever been made like that? Like how, what is the, you know, okay, In Cold Blood, okay, Taxi Driver, what, like, let's get in Badlands, let's get into it. Like if, if you're going to do it, how can you make it great? And then I fell in love. Like then as I started to work on it, I started to get, I started to see it and I started to be, poten there started to be potential and I got afraid that. I would be put in a position to do something I was morally uncomfortable with by making the women too hot or too sexy or something, you know, and, and I just ended up saying, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing any of the deals. And I called Brad Wyman 
And I said, I really appreciate. So they want, but they want to do a deal with you. But like to, they were going to pay me fifteen thousand dollars to to write with no attachment to direct, and it was got it. You know, and so you, the, your goal in your mind when you started the project, like I have just to get a movie made. I have to direct this, and I have to write it. What was the point if I didn't direct it? Because I'm a director, you know. Like that was my so my objective was absolutely. I'm one of. I'm but not you, a but you, have, but you have nothing to show anybody no. that that could even remotely compare to this kind of filmmaking, and you have to sell them on somebody who technically, at that point not in really. time, that's you're not. the point. You don't. I didn't have to sell them because they're like, yeah, okay, there's nothing to lose. Fifteen thousand dollars. No, but but they 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 gave you the deal to write it. Yeah. They didn't give you the deal to direct right. it at that point. Yes. So you have to convince people to do something when you have no evidence that you can do it. Yeah. Well, then that's the, a tricky. The only evidence is your vision. But I that so this is where it's tricky, and I'm grateful because I start writing it. I start to see it as something bigger. Eileen Warnes is writing me back, and then I start to really. I think I realize it's Charlize that I want. I write Don't Stop Believing into it. All of these things start to happen where I'm like, oh my God. And the Don't Stop Believing moment, which is still one of the scenes I'm the most proud of in my life, was the first time I was like, that's what I've wanted to do since I started, is put music to picture and make you fucking feel that thing that transcends. Where I'm not co-opting Don't Stop Believing, but I'm combining it with something else and making a third thing. But also that was what was embedded in you from the beginning that you said when you were four years old, the yeah. music, and then how you worked on putting the pictures to the music. So yeah. it all comes... Totally. And so I start to want this desperately. Like, I see the movie. Now... Now you see her, but you, you're writing it, and you're writing it for Charlize. At some point, by the end of the first act. Now what's odd is that... I you, never think I'll get her conscious i kind of do but i don't like but in the mind of uh you know the, the layman or anybody they would think okay well, let's look at a picture of eileen let's see what kind of character he is how how could we possibly believe that charlize theron knowing what we've seen of her in things how could she transform into this or no how how did you know number one that she had the ability of, of course you, you know the ability to do this kind of film and the ability to transform into who you want her to be. Did you just have an, uh, an instinct? I did just have an instinct, and I didn't know for sure. You never do know. You're ro- with that kind of a difference, you're rolling the dice. But what I did know was what I needed. And I needed uh, a truly tough person, and I needed someone who worked hard and who didn't wink to the camera when they thought something was stupid. And I saw that she was unvain in shots that I'd seen of her. I was like, she's not vain. And ever, and then I watched a bunch of movies, even movies that I didn't like. And she was always trying. Like, she was always trying. And I knew that it was going to take that too. And then it comes down to genuinely just animal sense. Men, I'm always so interested by men's opinion of other male actors and things because men suss out who they think is real and who they don't. And the hardest thing to find in Monster was a woman who I genuinely believed was that tough but who also was incredibly vulnerable and emotional. Those are the two things I saw in Charlize. And as an animal, when you meet Charlize, she's a powerful person. And so 
it was real, yet she's very kind and, and warm and all those other things. So that was it. It wasn't about really her looks, even though, frankly, Eileen Warnes had been a very good-looking woman when she was younger. So that, to me, wasn't as radical as it was to other people. I was like, she's gonna, Eileen Warnes had great bone structure. She could have yeah. been a beautiful woman if things had gone differently, you know? So how do you go about getting your first project made that you're you literally you've been pounding the pavement doing everything you can shit isn't going the way you want it to how do you get it how does it all come together do you have a do you have anybody representing you anybody at the time when you're there's only brad all there is is brad and And this is why i owe my career to him because he and he's selling stuff online he's selling stuff online but here's what here's what here's what happens and this is the the order is not even necessarily helpful for other people because it's not how it's one of those things you know it's just how it happened the expectation the necessity on this movie was so low that I was accidentally hitting the mark, you know, because even by aiming higher, it's like, but I, but I have lesbian serial. I do have lesbian serial killers. Oh, you want lesbian serial? Oh yeah. Well, I've got those, you know? And it's like the bar was very low. So the opposite of what you are preparing for, like, am I good enough? Can I get this movie made? So two things happened. The bar's super low. Eileen Warnus has started writing me and now, and then she gets executed this is she got executed after Charlize had been attached, so that's not she quite was exactly. Executed in two thousand two, right? Yeah, so it gets to a place where now it's for no those of you longer. Don't, for those of you don't know, she she was executed for killing uh, seven, seven men. men in Florida. Yeah, and and, and it doesn't actually. It, she it's, was convicted for six of them, I believe. Yeah. Go on, and I'm so sorry. It, no, I no longer. It, it became a place where it, the question was no longer was I good enough to direct this, and this helped me through the whole process. The question was no one was directing it at this point but me because I had been given a moral obligation that was no joke. I was like, I can't be involved in putting this out into the world if this is an exploitation film about her or about the victims or if it crosses any lines i was like now i'm the one who's been given so she ended up giving me all of her personal letters and all of these things and that's not that i owe a debt to eileen warnes i owe a debt to the truth the day she died what what were the emotions going through your head at that point it was sad you know it was sad but i was actually okay with it because she was such a tortured mind that I was happy for her to be free. Like there was no way for her to keep going. There's what do you do? I mean, she was, she hated herself and tortured herself and yet felt like she could never explain her background. It was an ugly mind to be trapped in. Did Selby visit her in prison? No. Selby had no contact with her um, at some, after some point. They wrote to each other for about, I think, four or five years. And then she moved on with her life. And uh, not at the end. No, I don't. I don't think so. My friend. Uh, Did you meet friend, Selby? No, no. Tyra Moore. No, the real woman. No. Oh, that's and right. And I kind of didn't want to. That's right. The real. Yeah. I kind of didn't want to, because I had very. I'm not like a journalist, so I can't be. Uh, I I'm not a good actor, so I had a lot of problems with her and I wouldn't have been able to pretend that I was going to be so when uh sympathetic when Eileen died in 2002 by a lethal injection where were you in the screenplay were you done I was done and we were a month away from shooting you're a month away from shooting yeah. and you, okay and so tell me how you the got the middle 
the movie so so i so i finished the, the script came from how it all came yeah together. so i see the whole thing in my head i see the whole thing and by the way it feels possible for whatever reason i'm like why wouldn't we get the money it's like you could feel everything lining up i'm like so and so could make their money off of it and i you know but yet still i'm an i'm an amateur really of getting a movie made and so Brad had said to me, just when you're done, just give me the script. At this point, finish it. He did a good job of like, when I, when I said I was walking away, he's like, well, you better finish it at least. But you and said you were a bad writer. I'm an okay writer. I'm an okay writer. You're changing your mind now. No, I mean, I'm better than, <laughs> the, than some writers, but I, I'm not, it's not my natural skill set. Well, sit. for it not be your natural skill set, you're amazing. Oh, so. God, thank you. Um, and I feel I actually am very proud of that script because I feel like that w I hit some very truthful places in there for me, and so I, I'm very I, I'm very pleased with that script. So you give it to him, and what does he? So do I give it? it to him. He's like, ah, it's all right. He, he okay. doesn't like it. Well, he's ambivalent, and he's kind of like, all right, I'll, I'll make it. I'm, I'm going to make it. I'll make it. Okay. So then now he starts the ball rolling and it's thanks to him that all of those questions you're going to ask about the middle about like, how did you get to direct it? Brad has been around this industry for a long time and his father was a huge entertainment lawyer before him. And so Brad just understood power dynamics well enough that he was like, million people get their first time movie made. Why aren't you good enough? Why wouldn't you? Of course you can, make, a, you can there, be the director. But there's a part of you, and I'm going to say this, and this is probably going to jump over the couch and strangle me maybe, but as I sit across from you, and I don't mean to embarrass you, there's a part of you that I, I can visualize that, like that romanticism about you. And I, I can picture Brad, I can picture this guy who's at a different stage in life entirely, but he sees you and you have this thing that makes people just want to fall for you in a way. Not to say that Thank Brad's you. thinking in his mind, I've got a chance here. But, but somebody who actually feels a love for you and actually in many ways is in love with you without the physical love. And you bring that out. Thank to, you. And I can imagine when you were with God. him, he thought to himself... I am going to do something here that's going to help this person that I love get to the next level with her talent and mine because I really, I feel something for this person. And I think that's what you probably I don't know, him, but thank you. I like that. fight for you so much, not only yeah. because of your talent, because that romanticism that you have that just feels like, you know, like, I'd follow you to the depths of hell. I mean, it's just you have that way about God, you. God, oh, my God. Thank you. I've never heard any of this. Nobody's ever said any of this to me, so I'm very... Get out. No, I mean, on. I've never, like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. That's very interesting. I would never think of it that way. And this is the way it is when um, you're... I, I want to say this, and you can, uh, you can disagree if you want. The thing about being a woman in this business that's so difficult and especially today, it's like, how many times are you in a situation as a woman in this business anywhere around or in any business? You get a text, you know, a coworker or somebody is like, hey, you know, listen, I'm here. You want to get a cup of coffee or whatever. And you literally you're at the diner. You're having the cup of coffee. And five minutes in, you're saying to yourself, is this a date? Does this does this yeah. does this guy oh, think God. it's that a date? That happens all the time as a woman. Yeah, all and the so time. as a woman in the business, the navigation for you or any woman in the business, the hardest thing is like to get where you want to go, 
when you're dealing with men is the illusion that they have a chance. So when you walk away, you do your business, you get your business done, you walk away and you swagger in the other direction. He's thinking to himself, eh, you know, she likes me. You know, I could, you know, something could happen there. I mean, nothing's going to happen, but I mean, you know, I mean, I, I still got it. And, and that's what a lot of times what has to happen in the business to get where you want to go is to be able to navigate and be able to do those things because you, you're dealing with all these old school men but you still got to maintain your integrity. So I truly believe without even knowing your situation that this man heard your story was with you and, and sort of fell in love with you in a way, but not in that way, but had that kind of love for you and was willing to fight to do anything to get you what you wanted. And because you, you instilled that. So uh, keep going with the story. Thank I'm sorry. You. I have no idea. I have an idea. I also know that he, you know, he's made, he under I think he also understood like that the, that that it was a move that why wouldn't it be made and maybe you know he did want me to succeed he certainly stuck by me you know and I I remember these very funny moments where you know here I am thinking about like can I get my first movie made and there was somebody who questioned whether I should be the director at some point coming along and I had showed uh Brad a, a video of my pit bull hanging from a rope in a tree swimming and he goes send him that fucking video and I go uh I can't send that guy a video he's like a financier and he was like send him the fucking video and I sent him the video and Brad goes that's that's why that's that's all I've got to show you uh what are you gonna do she owns the script and I ended up staying on it. He's like, yeah, fuck that dude. He can't ask you you own the full fucking thing fuck them but he just understood power dynamics enough that he mm -hmm. was like if you own the script and actors are wanting to work with you, nobody has any right to question you. Why can't you do it? You're the one with holding the power. They don't hold the power, you know. And so he just kind of did that through the whole process until I was. So anyway, the, the thing is, it wasn't going to cost very much money. And the thing that I hadn't figured into it was women are desperate for a good role. So the script took off in the town. I had the opposite of what I have had since, which is instead of it being like this long development process. My first draft got green lit and we were supposed to be shooting three months later and it was like a train, runaway train, because the expectations were so low. Women wanted to play that role and it only cost a million dollars and you have movie stars coming out. And so, so the budget of the film was about a million dollars. A million dollars. Okay. Yes. All right. So you, one thing And then it ended up being, I think it ended up being you know, four or something like that by the end. And what people, people don't understand is like people think you're a millionaire when you're doing something high uh -huh. profile. Oh, they, yeah. they think you're like... No, you're... Nobody can ex can be exemplify that. I got paid for Monster $65,000, period. Wasn't in either union. I don't get any residuals. I've never gotten anything after the fact. $65,000 was what I made. And that was gone, you know, $65,000 after taxes. I wish I had done your deal. You know, I wish you had too. <laughs> I wish somebody had joined... Told and made me join the unions. That's what I wish. But so the sad. fact is, but I people think people are millionaires when they're doing these things. You're at the Academy Awards. You got your beautiful you wanna, dress on, you your hair up in a bun, your beautiful hair up in a bun somewhere. We do this whole awards run, and it never occurs to anybody, uh, as as it shouldn't, that I have no money. I have nothing. So the whole time we're like flying around the world, staying at the Georges Sank, and I have money to pay the bill. I don't have any money to 
even by a paper. And so the entire run of the success of Monster, I was like living this hilarious dual existence of like these events. Nobody cared about me, so they're not going to loan me a dress and some shoes. But I didn't have any dresses or shoes. But if you said, I'm not going... They would have found a way to finance the dress and shoes. But I would never have told them that I couldn't get a dress or shoes, you know? Like, I, so it was, it well, was I mean, Charlize loaned me clothing. Brad got somebody to sew me a dress. It was like people did. To sew you a dress. She got, he found a, uh, he found a dressmaker oh, who, it. like, it was worth it for them to make me a dress. So it was so, like, but it was still, it was hilarious, the whole thing. So, and so you have Charlize in mind for this role, but there's other women really really great actresses that are coming to you and now you're in a position of power some of the most powerful agents managers yep. are calling you yes and you're saying well thank you very much I, I i really have a vision for this come on just just meet with her yeah i met and with everyone and you're thinking and you're thinking my god i have to you know i have to i have to turn down great people mm-hmm. So who were some of the people who were fighting to get this role, or at least their agents and managers were fighting for them to get it, who didn't you know, end up I don't want to say, I don't want to say names, but a lot of people. I mean, and, and... Was there anybody who came in and said, listen, I know we're meeting, I know I don't normally do this, but you know, there was a story about Jim Carrey and, um, and Nicolas Cage, uh, Milos Forman directed yeah. Man on the Moon. They both wanted it badly. And he said, well, if you want it, you can audition for me. Right. And they had to go in and read for him and I believe it. And, and do it. So were there some actresses who were so established they're like, look, no one's going to know. My agent managers are going to know. I want to come in here and I want to I do this yeah, for Yeah, not you. huge. The huge ones didn't, but uh-huh. I had some well-known middle Rain, I remember like, I remember Jay Moore, who you did his yeah, podcast. Yeah. He did a movie called Playing by Heart, which was a, uh, a an amazing movie with Sean Connery and Angelina Jolie and uh, and Ellen Burstyn, and he played a a, a, a young man dying of AIDS. I never and saw I, that. And I remember I see that. Yeah, and I remember he he he. Uh, it was a Saturday. He had to do the audition at the person's house, the director's house, and. Um, he said, Bear, I'm going to call you afterwards. I'm going to do something there that's going to, uh, I'm going to get this gig. I said, okay. He calls me afterwards and he tells me, he goes to the director, they're about to read in the living room. He said, can I ask you a favor? And the guy said, sure. Can we do this in your bedroom? And the director's like, oh, okay. Go in the bedroom. And without any, without asking, he crawls into the guy's bed Whoa. with the sheets above him on the pillow, props himself up and pretends like he's the guy in the hospital bed wow. telling the story. And that's what got him the that's gig. That's amazing. And so I just was wondering if there yeah. were people that really tried to get to you. And was there somebody that, was there somebody that blew you away that actually, if you didn't have Charlize, and even though she was such a household name, somebody that came in and just really fucked you up and you were like jesus i mean this person i would hire in an instant if i could but mm-hmm. i can't did that there happen were, yeah there was i'll always remember mary mccormick because i remember looking at mary and i knew she could do it and it's funny because we're friendly now and 
I remember first seeing her after I'd made Monster and there was this smile and she like shook her head and she was like, God damn it. And she and I both knew that she could have done it and she could have been great. And, but I, I couldn't have gotten the movie made with her and she knew it, you know, and that was very sad. Maria Bello was also somebody who I was like, she's really great. And, but. So those two people were people who, but I wa- I wanted Charlize. So when when you meet, and then I got Charlize. When you, so then it was a moot point. So when you meet with Charlize and 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 she ends up becoming a producer on it because that's what you have to do to get anybody at a certain point. You have to give them the credit, give them the power, and you're sitting down across from somebody who is nowhere near at your level. It's like literally like you're. It's like if I were to meet the president. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's like this person is is in another stratosphere. You're at the time an embryo mm-hmm. and she's a full-grown woman. Mm-hmm. Do you have it in your mind like when you're meeting her? Okay. All right. You know, keep it together. You're, just, you're, you're, you're in control. Because this, you know, this is the first time in your life, in my humble opinion... Where when you walk on that set, you are in control. You've never been in control your whole life. And now you're in control. However, there's one little piece of the puzzle of an actress who, if she wanted to, she could easily take control away from me. Yeah. So you had to figure out how to navigate and get the performance out of her. And now what's hard yeah. is like some some directors say... Like when you're working with an actor, you don't even, like Clint Eastwood, he doesn't even, I mean, there's no, you don't even know if you're doing a good job or not. He just trusts that you're going to make your choice. I'm the opposite of that. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, uh, like there's stories about how, like, people like Hilary Swank would, like, talk to people, like, on, um... Million dollar, million dollar baby yeah. and just take them aside and anybody worked on the set and say am, am i am i am i doing a good job yeah. i mean i don't know if i'm doing a good job or not yeah and she won the academy award yeah. so charlise had like you you see all these scenes and the scenes that always mean the most to me and i don't know why because i'm a comedy guy are the scenes when the camera's on somebody and it's not moving and there's that thing that happens in their Inside, eyes, and, 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 and it's just here, and then yeah. the eyes start welling up, and yep. there, there's that thing, and there's the, you know, the the, the, the quiver, and, yeah. and the thing like that, just something that just, and you know that even though it is a $1 million or $4 million film, you know that every time this happens, there's not just one take. Yeah. So you know that, you know, when you had the close-up on her, I mean... At the least, you did it three times. Yeah, we did a, we did a lot of takes. So, as a director, do you have to get that out of her, or was she the kind of actress that that channeled something inside and just knew what you wanted? Out both, of both. So, so the funny thing is, is talking about how that whole journey happened. The whole experience of Monster, and I think that this is true in the best directing scenarios. It's it's moved on to being something about something so much further than you. So in that case, I was like possessed. I I felt like I was possessed with the responsibility and possessed with the feeling that it was something that should be made, you know. And so then it becomes about the movie, truly. 
So even when I went into Charlize, I've never been so clear about what I wanted. I wanted her. I believed she was the right person. So it was super intimidating. And she was very, uh, like, she, she was so funny in her well, meeting. She, she was, was probably like, flattered. what is your problem? She was no, she, I was actually genuinely perplexed and a little tough at first because she was like, I don't get it. You, you're like, what's your, it, what's your deal that you're coming after me? And I think suspicious because, like, these are women who are used to being taken advantage of. It could be a TNA movie. Everybody involved is, like, a low-budget thing. So she wasn't suspicious of me, but she was genuinely suspicious of what the... Why would somebody come after her for this? Did her team want her to do it? Her late manager, J.J. Harris, did. Took it on, like, saw it and believed in it. And she lobbied to get Charlize to take a look at it. And um, so her manager did believe in it and, you know, very much why it happened. The agency, did they believe in it? She didn't have, uh, you know what, JG was at, was an agent still at that okay, point. So it. she was at UTA, forgot about got that. It. Yeah. Um, so, but it was, that's it. It was a very small. But this is where you did, this is where you did have control. You wrote, you wrote the story. Mm-hmm. You got the letters from the actual person mm -hmm. before they died. So no one had that info. Mm -hmm. No one had that intel. No, no one ever had. And so and so you're in a situation where she has to listen to you. Right. If you're giving her direction on something, there's no way she's going to say, well, she would never do that because it's like she... It's not like something that was well known. You were the, you were the Encyclopedia Britannica of the thing and so she so you were in control i was and but also we were partners in that too like we both we both did a lot of research together and we both made a pact to be truthful about what we were seeing and luckily we really bonded on this issue so we saw it very similarly so when you started casting the rest of the roles i imagine she even though she would never admit it publicly had veto power over the major roles that came in. she never did that. Never. She, she wasn't, she was very supportive and Did it she wasn't, read with the other people or did no. she, did she meet with the other people? So, with the Selby she did. With Selby she did. But she, and she was very, um, you know, she was getting up to speed. So she was, at that point I was already so far down the road. And then by the time we're shooting, we're kind of more up to speed with each other. But she wasn't, she had her opinions, but she wasn't, she, you know, but the day she, we hired her, I was definitely like, wow, let's hope for the best. Cause this person could fire you or dislike it. Or we're like, that's the power is definitely, she was definitely the powerful person. It just, we got lucky that when, we were partners. What day of the shooting you got home exhausted you crawled into the fetal position and you said to yourself, this is going to be fucking huge. I, many, I, I, I feel like I never, I, I was always, my conscious self was aware that a million things were going to go wrong. And I feel like that moment gets stolen from you because oftentimes you're always dealing with such huge problems like people you know they sold the video out from under it so now no studio is going to buy it and you're just you're 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 failing all the time every time you make a film every day it's so precarious and we had no distribution and we were a laughing stock at that point too by the way so it's not like oh Charlize Theron why no, were you a laughing stock Charlize Theron is playing Eileen Warren's what a fucking joke you know like what a joke and she was she was successful then but she wasn't who she is now so it wasn't like she wasn't you know necessarily automatically taken why, seriously. You know why she is who she is now? <laughs> I don't know. 
I mean, look. It's because she took a risk. Exactly. She's taken a lot of risks. And she took a risk on somebody who had never done it before. Definitely. And she bet on you. And like Brad, she sat in the room with you. And she fell in love with who you were and what you were about and your passion. Because she looked at you and said, what's wrong with you? And it was the romanticism, not of love, but of the love of making high art. Yes. And I loved this movie, and I did. And that that I did love this movie, you know. And I feel like, um, yeah. I mean, I feel like I, I, never, I, I never had a time to stop. and th- I, I could, But I, here's what I could feel. I had learned in making my short films. My last short film was a film that I loved on paper. And then... I let the process take it away from me. And on the days I was sitting on set, we were having so many problems that I didn't feel it. But I thought, well, it's probably there. You know, so, I mean, it's probably so when, there. So it's like when, a joke. So when did you know? Oh, every day on Monster, I was like, this is fucking happening. So I swore to myself after my last film, I said, don't ever, my last short film, I said, I'm never doing that again. I'm never going to sit on set and... And let it not happen on set. And I still think this is my strength. Is my biggest strength is I have is I have learned how to tune everything out, and emotionally drop into what I really see happening right then and there. It was hard on Charlize because it wasn't a logical step. So if I didn't, there was I remember one scene she was doing a great performance, but I wasn't feeling it. I just was not feeling it, not feeling it, and I was so hard on her. Because I was like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not crying. I should be crying. It's the bus station when she sends Selby away. It was great on paper, but I wasn't feeling it. And she was so exhausted. And we'd been shooting like 10 pages a day. And like we just kept going until all of a sudden something clicked. And I was sobbing. And I was like, it happened. And you can't tell where the line is. But that's the strength that I brought if anything, that I still think is, is, is the thing that I care about the most is like, you got to go to like a basal state and actually see it because you're going to do what you never, ever, ever want to do is show up to the editing room and realize that all that work and you never got it, all that work, all those people, all that stuff. And then you moved on and it, it didn't happen. It's not to say you do 20 takes and it's not to say you do it on everything. But when the moments you need the, it to happen, it better happen right here and right now, you know. And so that was... I remember being the, on a movie with Howard Deutsch, uh, uh, Best Friends Girl with Kate Hudson. And it was a scene where he wanted her to cry. And he kept asking her to do it again and again and again. And after he cut after the fourth time, she looked at him and says, Howard, I'm not fucking crying for you. I'm not going to do it. I'm not fucking crying in this scene. Wow. That's a moment you don't want to be in. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. And Tense she was moment. giving emotion that you felt like you felt her. Not to say that. I'm, compar- I'm comparing a- Best Friends Girl to the monster. It's no, like no, comparing no. Kmart to. Uh, no, no. It's all the, the same. Uh, I was going to say this is the same as comedy. But, it's either funny or it's not funny. And there's millions of intangibles and comedy is very much the same. It's like there, you can't talk about it. 
because it's not an intellectual process. So you can't say we did two takes. That was funny. He said the joke. You're like, but it didn't make, it's not funny. I don't know why. Something has to happen. No, that's, that's. That makes it funny. And it either is funny or it's not funny. And you have to fuck around until you get it there. And there, it could go, it could be anything. That's the problem. No, it's cool. So you, so you have, there's no money to promote the film. There's no money to do a campaign. How did she get nominated for an Academy Award? This is a tight rope walk. And that's why I'm saying I knew that what we had done was something that I was super proud of. And I was like, that's, I love it. You know, like that's what I wanted to do. And I love it. And I think it's great. I don't know what other people think. So when you saw the finished product in front of an audience, you again walked away and did you think to yourself flawless i no 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 (laughs) oh my god will that day come no in fact it's funny i have the funniest memory of the premiere because every i had my moments in the editing where it's like when i edited certain scenes i was like oof i love it this is sometimes those moments in the editing room are the moments you've waited for i've waited for my whole life where i put music to it and i cut it and it, it makes me cry every time i see it and i'm like i did it i don't know whether it, what it will be to other people but that made me feel what I wanted to feel by the time you're done with the movie you're like it's this is where I'm saying like the champagne moment never comes it's like one problem after another and the funniest story is Steve Perry had uh, in the process of getting the song don't stop believing became literally my best friend at that time and still <laughs> one of my best friends because he gave, stopped everything came out of seclusion and finished the film with me for four months every day to the point of like I was having moments where I was really losing it with different things and he would like drive me to a musician's house and record music to put in the thing and like he made it he pushed me helped me go across the finish line so I'll always remember sitting in the premiere of Monster um, and Steve was sitting next to me and the entire time we were like God damn it the fucking crickets got how did we told them bring the sound down on the crickets, and, the crickets are back. and so the entire time you're like perseverating over you you you're you're left at the last stop which was the last stop you were on was the sound mix and you're like did you hear the subwoofers they're totally high not in the center channel the voice is in the wrong place that was my entire the whole time steve and i were like this is ridiculous like and then you've forgotten that other people were like Oh my God, Charlize is Eileen Warnish. You're like, what? Oh yeah, no, that was so last year. We're like over <laughs> that part. We've moved on to something else. But yeah, so I feel like I, but I will tell you this. I hope I, I hope that this happens to me many times in my life. But what was wonderful about that movie was I knew that I was happy with it, which then buffers you so much from so many things. Because you're like, I don't know, you can like it or you can not like it. That's the movie that I that's the movie I wanted to make, and I did feel that, and I still l- love uh, so many things about it. So you're at the Academy. So you're at the Academy Awards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. So you're at the Academy Awards. You're 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 somebody who is waitressing a dojo, yeah. living in a studio apartment, making shitty short films yep. that you felt were horrible. Yep. You said you were a horrible writer. And there you are in a gown that somebody probably sewed for you, or you got at Zara in yeah. Century, uh, Very similar. whatever yeah, it was. And, and, and you're there, and you're sitting in a group of people around your star who's nominated. The envelope, I mean, what happens to you at that moment? Like what? I thought I was going to lose my mind. It was the culmination of everything. But the funny thing was I had been very fixated on her winning an Oscar from very early on. And not because um, 
and it was funny when she was nominated it was it was her nomination of course but it meant so much for the film that it was all I had been focused on. Like, I was sort of like, you, you could win any other award you want. Nobody cares, you know? Like, uh, I mean, I care. I got Best First Feature at the at the Spirit Awards. All you wonderful. Won. Not going to change the success of the film. We had no money to promote the film. And from very early on, I was like, oh, my God, she could win Best Actress. And she should. And only if she does does this movie have a prayer. Like, this, 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 is, this, is, this is it. This is it. Like the only thing this entire movie rests on her performance. And it was one of those movies that came out for a couple of days in December just to get yeah. the nomination or whatever, however, however it works. And then and then the Academy Awards were a short time uh, later. So a lot of people hadn't even seen the film. No. I mean, uh, I, we were Charlize and I were both against releasing it that quickly, but it was just how it happened. The door the, again, the window opened. Isn't and, it nice that you both were wrong? Yes. Really? So you're yeah. at the Academy Awards, the yeah. envelope. We were exhausted by that point. The, the thing that you would never think is that whole process of having a successful film, and particularly for me because it was zero to 60. Like I went from knowing, having no agent, no manager, knowing nothing about the industry to like the barrage of, a, of, some, of this moment so quickly. No, nothing leading up to it. No festivals Agents and managers calling you every day. It's the day. most exhausting thing <laughs> I've ever done in my life was like you're attending multiple events a day, in my case with no money and no one to drive me. And so it's like your head's going to explode. So it's the, 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 the Oscars was the end of a two-year marathon to try to get the movie seen and to be what it is. And it was, I was so happy for her. I was so proud of her. But it was also like a deep breath. I took, I took Brad with me. And Brad and I sat there and I was like, oh, I cannot believe we did it. Like we got it. Because it, it really was like about to be a disaster at every step you know so it was just and i was i was grateful you know well no one deserves it more than you now we managed to talk about nothing but monster <laughs> no actually actually we've talked okay. about we've talked about the very little about monster believe it or not we've talked uh, the majority of the time about other stuff oh good good which is shocking to me one of the things that we we, we're, we need to wrap up just to get yeah. you out of here because I've taken you so long but i want to ask i wanted to ask you this question which is the most difficult question to ask an artist, especially an extraordinary artist like you. And a lot of people out there who are doing this, who are musicians or singers or actors, actresses, directors, writers, they roll out with their first thing and they hit a fucking home run. It's like a baseball player getting up to bat, hitting a grand slam on their first at bat. Or it's about... Uh, a young producer being on the Dennis Miller show like Jeff Cesario, who is an executive producer who doesn't even know how to get somebody coffee. And four episodes in, he wins an Emmy Award. Right. Uh, or or uh, a guy like Lance Crowther worked with Chris Rock and you know, four Emmy Awards or Eddie Feldman, five Emmy Awards or somebody who gets an Academy Award right away. Like... What I don't understand about the business, and you're going to say, well, Barry, I don't understand it either, but I, I, want, I want to break it down because I think it's important for artists. The thought process for me is after that happens and you direct that movie, it's like everybody would think, you're set. 
You're right. every, every role, every 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 single thing is going to be offered to you. You're going to offer all these chances to direct every movie, write this movie. You're going to be hired to do this, that, and that. And then things don't always go the way they're supposed to go. And when they don't go the way you think they should go, forget the movie, yeah. but I'm talking about career-wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you reach inside and say, okay, Chappelle used to have this great line, and I hope you'll oblige me to do this. He used to say when he was younger, he used to say, when I was younger, I'd watch the Hulk. Come home from school, watch the Hulk. It was wonderful. It was incredible, you know. He would go into town, pick a fight with somebody. They'd get mad, angry. He'd turn into the Hulk. He'd beat the shit out of them. And he'd walk out of town. Na-na-na-na. Right. Na-na-na-na. After five episodes, I looked at the television and I said, maybe it's you. Maybe you can't get along with people too right. well. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So the point I'm trying to make, right. your everything you did is wonderful. Well, everything you everything you did you you your work in writing it from nothing there was nothing it was zero there was nothing existed your brain your talent your fingertips on the computer you wrote it you engaged an actress to play the role you engaged a man to represent the film you got on the set in the editing bay to where people took notice. The film won many awards. She won an Academy Award, Golden Globe. I'm not saying that you're 1% of that because you're clearly not. I'm not saying you're 100% of it, but you're somewhere somewhere between the 85 to 100% range of the responsibility of what happened and the impact that this thing made on people's lives, the actresses' lives, the other people in the film. And in my mind, you're the kind of person it would it would appear would be like after that it'd be like literally you'd have like a baseball bat knocking down the opportunities coming to you. And I did. And whatever. And you and in the beginning you were and selected, I and I still have, and, and I still have. And so you're sort of uh, like that character. So you're for. sort of. No, like I'm that, not saying they're knocking down, but I still like. Are you sort grateful. of like the character from the Fountainhead, where it's like people come to you with things, and like I remember Catherine Bigelow. She won the Academy Award, and then she was doing a commercial for Revlon or something like that. Yeah. And it's like I'm thinking to myself, well, why is she doing? Why is she doing a Revlon commercial? I mean, granted, they probably paid her a million dollars, but right. Like, wh- what's what's happening here? Yeah. And so I wanted to know for you in your mind, in these past um, years since then, and you've done a lot of amazing things and direct a lot of things, but are things going the way you thought they would go? And if they are, how so? And if they aren't, why so? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't know that I ever had the chance to think about it the, uh, my success happened so quickly i never i went from not being so far from success to having success that i don't know that i knew what i thought it would be like but i'll tell you you said something earlier about the hardest thing about being a woman is fielding those ambiguous sexual 
you know, sexuality. And that's true. That is very true. But the, I think the hardest thing about being a woman is that you are different. You are different. And there's sexism, and I could talk about all that, and you do, like, you, you know, as much as I've always tried to tune it out, you notice little things where you're like, oh, my God, I think that's happening because I'm a woman. That's so weird. But to me, the truly hardest thing was men can have their cake and eat it too. You can have children and a life and continue to work the whole time. And I immediately, after making Monster, was 31 years old, and the thing that was the clearest to me was I had not been alive as me for two and a half years while I made that movie. I was a machine designed to make that movie, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And what I have found is far different than I ever thought it would be was I feel very, I have felt and I continue to feel very on my own of how to balance my priorities. Not long after that, I fell in love with my husband and it was the first time in my life I had really found that love that I had never found with my father and I had never found. And I knew right then and there, I was like, I can stop this and go make another movie right now. But I think I might lo lose living this moment. I waited my whole mo life to feel. And movies take three to four years. So I may never have a child. Like, for real. And you need to know that. Like, don't go into it like an idiot. And don't think to yourself, oh, you're going to, you know, whatever. You're going to make, you know, you'd make this thing. And you no, I know. I, I was a machine. to and I, and I am very focused when I work. So for me, the strangest thing about my career has been there are certainly things that work. And, you know, I'm trying to make a movie right now. And it's not as easy as I'd like it to be. But the hardest thing for me has been I know I made Monster 10 years ago. And everybody says, what happened? Why didn't you make another movie? And yet, I, there, uh, you know, there are movies I tried to make along the way that didn't work out. But I, I wanted to have a child. And then when I had that child, being a mother to that child was different than I thought it would be. That child needs you there. They, they need you there more than I could be directing a feature film. And so it was really only two years ago that I really felt like, okay, now my son is old enough that he can understand. And even still, it makes me think about things differently because I have to, I don't, you know, there are big opportunities of things I could go do that I didn't care for. Um, you know, and there are, things I've been involved with that weren't gonna be a film that I felt like I was the right person to direct. And it makes it clearer when I'm like, really, you're gonna leave your son for three years to do something you don't even feel is honest to you, you know? And so my, the, the biggest thing that's been different than I thought it would be is I'm grateful that I still have people offering me projects. And I'm, and I'm so grateful that The Killing was successful and got attention and all of these things. The hardest thing for me still has been looking at that period of time and thinking, wow, I really, I, I really didn't know where to look for advice. But when you get successful, everything gets offered to you and you have to really decide what you want out of this life, you know? And for me, I feel like I really had to say, wow, I care about having a child enough that I'm willing to, you know, postpone doing my next film. And and I think this will continue, you know, like it will continue. I actually am like voraciously back in, in my work now, which has been great because my son is five and I, and I, our life is very different. And I love the movie that I'm working on again, you know, um, 
But I think it will continue to be that way. Like maybe when he's a teenager, people tell me they can get really dodgy for a little while and you have to stop and pay really close attention. So that's the biggest thing is being a woman to me. I find myself to be in a completely different uh, game than the male directors that I know, who I look at who I'm like, God, I wish... Wish I had a wife who was the mom. Not really, literally, but it's like I wish I could just be thinking about it in that way. But my son's not going to see it that way, so I have to, I have to think differently. Well, I think you, I think you made the right choice. Thank and you. I, think I, you, I know and I you made chose, the right. And you chose love. You yeah. had, a, you, you had, a, you had great, walk, su- man. a great success, and you got great love. And they say that uh, from my sociology classes way back at Boston University, two things make a per- person happy reciprocal love and fruitful labor that is creatively enjoyable that puts food on the table and I a roof over your head more. so last few questions and then we're out yep uh biggest disappointment biggest uh biggest uh proudest moment professionally biggest disappointment um Besides biggest the disappointment the would be mix. the media's reaction when i left thor the the media the what i learned about the media you know and it continues to depress me you know i just feel like that all had to be made so ugly and it just was it didn't have to be like that and yet people went after the story and continue to talk about the story in a way that makes it salacious and blameful and I think like it's made an ugly situation out of a situation that was nobody's business and didn't have to be ugly, you know, of full of decent people, you know, that was my biggest disappointment. And that the fact that I'm like, dude, how many movies have I talked about or and they fucking Thor? It was, <laughs> you know, I'm happy they they made their movie. And I'd like why I just wish it wasn't such a big deal that a woman was going to do Thor. Oh, my God. And it made it a huge news story. Um, my biggest achievement. Our proudest moment. Proudest moment. Professionally. I've had so many. I think really the moments that you, the proudest moments that I've had, and I, I think like I've had them with a couple different times on sets, is is the moment that you're standing on set and it's this very amorphous moment that happens when something magical happens. And every single person there was elevated to doing something they could not have done alone. And you all feel that it happened, you know? And it's like, and it's unfettered by interpretation yet at that point. You know, like, oh my God, I can't believe you just did that performance. And the cameraman just made this look so incredible. And like all of them were some stuff you thought of and some stuff they thought of. And all of you reaching somewhere you never thought you had. Those are the proudest moments. And they're, and you and I finally, I have learned to take them when they come. Because like I said, the champagne moment never comes on the other end. You've moved on. Now you're on to, you know, the distribution of the product being bad or whatever it is. You know, like, so I think that's the proudest moment. Got it. And lastly, uh, your advice for anyone across the world who is an artist who's just, you know, like I said, just has a dollar and a dream. They're living in a studio apartment. They're waitressing. They're doing something that they just, they just have no fucking idea how it's going to happen or what's going to happen. How does somebody get to the point where you got where you you reached the highest level of your profession 
I think that my only advice, and I wish we could all follow it every day, but of course we can't, is forget talent and forget all that kind of talk. You know, it doesn't matter. It's not the most talented people I saw that made it. And it's not even the most talented people I saw that became great, ultimately. I think it's about dogged tenacity and smart tenacity. So don't do stupid things like, you know, if you're an actor, don't go stapling your headshot up exhaustively all over town because that's wasteful energy, you know? Try to be smart about what you do, but don't stop all the time and think about deserve. There's no deserve. Just dogged tenacity is, is like that's who I see succeeding. Awesome. Awesome. This has been so great. I am so honored to this have you so here. This was so fun. It was Thank such a you fun time. So much. Oh. I hate, I, I like, I'm in such a... Uh, Did play. I give the kind of performance you wanted? You gave a great <laughs> performance. Oh, my God. I You actually, it's funny because I can't help but sit here and look at you and I'm like, oh, Betty is a great fucking manager. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I can see it. That's the, I can see it. You're like going very deep with your like observation of people. I like it. That's the greatest compliment you could <laughs> oh, ever yeah, give Oh, yeah. No, I see it. I see it. Thank you so much. You should all be so lucky. Patty, uh, uh, thank you. And again, uh, I appreciate you being being here and I'm this happy. has been so great and this has been another episode of industry standard and of course if you like the show please uh tell all your friends and if you didn't like the show just tell all your yourself. friends <laughs> <laughs> thank you i'm honored to have been on too oh, thank you it's awesome thank you They say it's the glory I'll scream your name and Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.